Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome, I think, to the first ever pod we have released in February. We are technically between seasons of the Global Captive podcast with GCP 2021 due to launch on the 1st of March, but this episode and the next 40 minutes or so, I think, is the first in a new series of something a little bit different. As you may know, we launched the new quarterly e-report, GCP Insights, in January, providing the global captive market with a resource full of informed insight and analysis. You can find the first edition on globalcaptivepodcast.com, and there is a link in the episode notes as well. And so the purpose behind this new uh, quarterly pod series, which will also be uh, quarterly and titled GCP Insights, is to talk through some of the biggest stories of the past few months with a familiar and friendly panel of fellow captive professionals. Kind of a a magazine-style pod, not taking ourselves too seriously, but taking a sideways glance behind the big captive headlines. So I suppose I should introduce the, the chosen three, all have featured on the pod in the past and if you do not know them already i'm sure after this episode and a few more you will have found yourselves acquainted and maybe even like and respect them as much as i do but first up and our resident captive lawyer is cassie buckman formerly managing director of compliance at elevate captives and currently founder and principal consultant with empowered risk consulting based in connecticut how are you doing cass Hi, I'm great. Excited to be here. And someone who I'm sure many of our US listeners have come across on the captive conference circuit is Joe McDonald, formerly of the South Carolina Department of Insurance and now of Ermi, publisher of Captive.com. What's up, Joe? Cheers, Kutch. Good to be here. And last but certainly not least is Karen Z. Karen is, of course, most famous for Karen's Captive Corner on the Global Captive podcast, but in her spare time is also program manager for the University of California's multiple captive insurance companies. Karen, welcome back onto GCP. Hi, Kutch. Yep, I'm happy to be here. This is your GCP Insights team, and as long as this goes relatively smoothly and none of them say something hugely libelous, then they'll be joining once a quarter for the rest of uh, this year. Today, we're going to be focusing on four hot topics from the past few months. The latest developments in Washington state, which includes some new legislation to, to get stuck into. The hardening market and what impact that is having on the captive market right now. Some actual news for once coming out of Europe uh, regarding Solvency 2 and possibly some new captive domiciles. And of course, it wouldn't be a captive insurance magazine or podcast with all the latest goings on in the 831B wars in the United States, which almost sounds like a bad Star Wars movie. Uh, I think the 831B wars but probably not quite as exciting. Um, also, at the halfway stage, we will have the latest quarterly investments update from friend of the podcast, London and Capital. We'll be joined by Chris DL and Roger Jones for that later. But guys, let's start with um, the one story that actually didn't make it into the first edition of GCP Insights, ironically enough. Um, Washington state legislators were kind enough to wait just a couple of days after our release uh, to present Senate Bill 5315, which looks to address for the first time through legislature an ongoing wrangle between Washington headquartered captive owners and Insurance Commissioner Mike Creedler. Joe, you and I published an exclusive on this together for Captive.com 
on 25th of January, kind of informing the, the captive industry of this legislation. So do you want to give us a, a bit of background on this, on this situation and, and kind of what the legislation says? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and thanks for that piece, by the way, Kutch. It, uh, it, was, it was quite good. Um, yeah, so quite and, good. I, and, 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 and I think, yes, <laughs> and I, uh, I, I think Washington State waited uh, until the, the first GCP Insights came out just to, uh, to complicate things further the same way they're doing with this, uh, the, this bill and, and, and the position they're taking on things. Essentially, and I guess I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, Washington State, the, the saga continues. Um, this, this bill is a, a compromise, uh, essentially, between Washington State's captive owner community and you know, insurance commissioner Mike Kreidler. Uh, the intention, I think, is, is really formalizing and clarifying Washington's position on, on captive insurers covering risk in the state. Uh, of note in this bill, uh, specifically, the bill states, the legislature does not intend by this act to make Washington a captive domicile. Rather, the legislature is in establishing a framework for registration by captive insurers that insure Washington-based entities and are licensed by the jurisdictions in which they are domiciled. Okay, so this framework, the framework in this bill puts a number of requirements on captives uh, that are writing Washington-based risks and owned by Washington headquartered companies. Uh, among other items in this framework uh, are number one, about a $2,500 registration fee. Uh, the captive itself will need to demonstrate that its assets exceed its liabilities by a million dollars. Uh, which is quite likely to be a bit uh, overly burdensome to smaller companies and, and could, could very well uh, make the captive option unsuitable you know, for them. Uh, there's also a 2% premium tax, which will be applied on all Washington risks with the met methodology uh, for calculating the, the Washington allocation scrutinized by Commissioner Kreidler. Uh, also, the 2% premium uh, is to be backdated to January 1st, 2011, uh, so a decade of taxes. So registration with the commissioner also only permits the captive to write uh, PNC insurance direct in the state uh, with other risks written by a front and reinsured by, by, by the captive. All right, so currently there is a report uh, that was commissioned by the state which should further outline the analysis of captive insurers operating in Washington. In the RFP for the report, the state asked for certain legal analysis, including with respect to the non-admitted reinsurance reform act uh, or NARA, uh, in addition to information gathering. So I thought I found that quite interesting. Um, there are factions in the captive community that believe this legislation would be unconstitutional uh, and that it smacks of one state trying to regulate another state's business. You know, the deal with self-procurement taxes is that, you know, there are states that leverage this option to force the hand of captives owned by companies incorporated in the state to domicile their captive uh, in their home state. All right. You know, I mean, I get that, but because, I mean, it's a, it's a source of revenue. Now, what Washington is doing, from what I understand, is unique in that they want to regulate and tax captives with Washington risks, but they don't want to create the context to do it in a cooperative manner. I think the better move, I mean, in my opinion, is to either become a captive domicile and compete to attract captive companies or just stay off the field. I mean, you know, it's, it's bad form, bad press and wielding a stick when I, I mean, quite frankly, I think a carrot would do better. Um, also, question arises, is this setting a bad precedent? Or, you know, what, what's going to be the further ramification in other states like Texas, New York, California, Illinois, uh, who could all follow suit? Well, I mean, those states already have a self-procurement tax. Exactly. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. Texas is 4.85%, um, which is 
a lot more than you know the two percent. But then mm-hmm. it comes down to our captives even mentioned right. in these. Right, like right. that's a that is a really big argument because they aren't, and it's not the captive managers who decide whether they are or not. It's going to be the owners who are paying it, so their tax advisors need to understand. For me, the, the tax bit is a pro, is potentially a problem for smaller captives. You know, Microsoft can probably stomach. 2% premium tax, same as Costco, same as Amazon, same as possibly even Alaska Air. But if you're a smaller com- if you're a much smaller company, I'd also be worried about this 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 what seems like double regulation uh, of captives. I don't know if you've come across this in other states, Cassie. The only one that I can think of, which is quite an interesting law, I only found out about last week, was Indiana has a has a law where if you're an 831B captive, you've got to register with the any any right and risk in indiana and i think owned by uh, an indiana business you've got to kind of register with the insurance department there which is quite strange but yeah cassie what's what's your view on this it, it seems pretty unprecedented I, I'm, I'm not as if someone sitting here in the english countryside i don't think i can comment on the u.s constitution but uh it, it seems like it's going to upset a lot of people i agree it will upset a lot of people and so indiana you mentioned they were trying to go back to um a 0.5 percent tax but they rolled back to what they were at, which is 3.5%. It never passed to lower. A lot of that argument um, and commentary was that these small captives that are meant to be used for the 831B status from the IRS uh, can't afford to bring suits. Like you were saying, these big companies can, but the little guys who are supposed to be benefiting the most can't. As far as precedent, they're trying to create it, I think. Whatever Washington does, everyone's watching. And I think it further creates a, a divisive situa- situation around an already heavily criticized sector of the insurance industry. And I mean, that's just, again, bad press. It puts a, a further black eye on the many good things that this, this industry is doing. Yeah, so one of, one of the interesting things, there was an amendment to the bill, I think it was only a couple of days after it was first presented. There's an amendment tabled, which would actually exempt uh, captives affiliated with public universities. So again, uh, I'm not the expert on public universities in, in Washington and which ones have captives, but the University of Washington is the biggest one. Uh, someone told me they're captives in Hawaii. I'm not sure that's, I don't know if that's correct. But and the other thing is this report that, that Joe touched on. The uh, Washington Insurance Commissioner's Office did release, actually, they did put a statement up on their website yesterday after after I had a few emails with them as well. Um, I don't think the two are necessarily related, but they said that this report, which was, they said publicly, it was commissioned to Milliman uh, to basically build this report last year on kind of the number of captive owners, which are Washington-based, um, what the kind of different avenues might be, the state of the captive market. And and they said this was going to inform the legislation. Now that report, I believe, was submitted a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Washington State uh, has told me it won't be published for another three weeks. And they told me that on the 1st of February. So probably looking around the 21st, 22nd of February, the earliest that report will be published. Um, if to me, it seems a bit odd that if you commissioned a report to be to inform and help you produce some legislation that they wouldn't publish that report when the legislation was produced to help inform legislators to consider whether the legislation was fit for purpose. Uh, so it seems a bit odd that we got the report coming later and we'll, we'll wait to see what that report says when it comes out. It does make me question, you know, what's in the report? If the report itself actually supported legislation, then you'd think they would just run with that and say, oh, look, here it is. 
But if the, if the report does not support the legislation, then they could handle it the very way they're handling it now. I mean, that would be, exactly. you know, that would be a, a move for them to make. So uh, it's all speculation right now at, at this point, as, as Kutch said, you know, we'll, we'll wait to, to, to we'll withhold judgment and wait till the report comes out. But uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to find out what it says. And we've been joined by Cassie's cats as well, which is uh, always always fun. Our fifth member of the GCB Insights team, but that's a good opportunity. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> that's a good opportunity to uh, to move on to. I won't say a happier topic because I know, looking at Karen's face, she's not particularly enjoying the the hard market right now. Karen is Karen is our captive owner representative on this uh, on this podcast. Look, we, we've covered. I'm pretty sure almost every single episode of a global captive podcast last year touched on or went into depth on the hard market how captive owners are reacting how it's impacting captive formations karen what's kind of your experience been of, of the hard market and uh, look there's loads of insurance reports that are out there which tell us about the rate increases we know but some lines have been particularly more affected than others but kind of what, what's your take on it from from your you know, kind of unique standpoint yeah so i think i think i mentioned to Kutch uh, just, you know, briefly that this is actually my first hard market um, being in that cycle. And it was interesting for me just to kind of go through it. And I know that it doesn't last forever, but it's definitely different than uh, previously. Right. So I think um, one thing that really stood out to me within the GCP Insights article about the hard market really was that poor communication, low notification or late notification, excuse me, of reduced capacity, significantly increased rates, you know, and or even complete withdrawal, uh, you know, leaving kind of the parent organization with very few options and definitely those difficult conversations that need to be had with senior management. Those were those were some of those sticking points you saw um, as a captive owner. And I definitely can relate to having seen in our own renewals this year um, how there was an intense use of the captive to fill uh, gaps and to provide the front layers of coverage in our towers. You know, our retention levels, SIR deductible layers, you know, increased 25 million for auto general and hospital professional liability at UC. Um, we had a 75 million dollar loss of capacity and limit compared to the previous years. So we dropped from a $270 million limit to a $195 million limit. Um, That's pretty huge. And, you know, we had to see, um, you know, the captive step up in that that regard. And we also saw a lot more exclusions from our carriers, you know, absolute exclusions. So one of the big things for us that they completely pulled out of was sexual molestation um, on top of, you know, previously cyber and TBI exclusions. So we actually had, for compliance purposes, a small Beasley um, uh, sexual molestation for a lot of our, our programs in the casualty tower. And yeah, that was is no longer there. They have an absolute exclusion on that this year. So interesting enough, you know, you see carriers that don't want to play in that space anymore and are not interested in providing coverage. And the parent organization, UC, had to step in with Fiat Lux and partner to see how they could build a new policy, right, or look for alternative solutions because it's not like that coverage isn't needed, right? And so, 
there we ha- we're exploring different options whether it's a new policy or even creating a new cell just for that uh, just to see what we can do and utilize a captive to try to smooth pricing volatility or to to fill in those gaps right where traditional insurance carriers withdraw from so i think it's interesting what you say about um and in that article about the kind of the late notification and poor communication it's a lot of the uh, airmic i think coined this term but a lot of the other risk management associations have picked up on it people we're not calling it a hard market a lot of time we're calling it a harsh market because it's look rates are rates are high rates are increasing it is a hard market in that sense but it's also a harsh market it's difficult to do business it's difficult to interact with insurers you're you're getting late discussion conversations and it's not often the, the the individual at the insurer say beasley in your case for example it might not be your relationship person who's making that decision they're keen to do business and someone higher up is telling them late in the day that you know what we're not writing that cover anymore or we're actually we're hugely reducing capacity now and that gets communicated down and everyone basically loses in that situation because because the person that runs your account at bz again for example is is left with egg on their face and you're left with a very last minute notification that you have no cover or not the capacity not the capacity that you need right exactly and i do think that uh, you make an interesting point because these these relationships with these carriers are long-standing relationships, right? And you almost feel like, whoa, I'm getting shafted on my end. But they may be thinking the same thing. To be honest, like it's just it's it's some it's a hard situation, definitely. And I do think that I guess the silver lining, if you look at it, I'm an optimist, so I'm trying to see the the, the glasses half full in some of these situations. Is that you know you really did see how you could utilize and kind of amp up you know your renewal discussions using your captive, and I do think that it has brought that to senior management, senior leadership, and even your board of directors kind of attention for many captive owners, because at this point, you should be really looking at how you can to to take more ownership and control, right, for the price of risk. Yeah. And yeah, leverage, exactly. Your negotiation power is there. Um, and I do think that that is a a really long overdue conversation from some of senior leadership and you know that that right now is being brought to the forefront because of this whole domino effect with a harsh market cassie i'm interested from your your perspective and the kind of kind of clients that you work with do you how much of those conversations are driven by because they're getting shafted on their insurance rates and they're looking for an alternative option is much of that business being driven by hard the insurance market Oh, I would say a large majority, yes. Um, They just can't afford it, you know, especially the midsize, uh, not Fortune 500 companies even. They look at their finances and it's just, if there's another way to do it that they actually are going to make money and not just give it away and they can still ensure the same amount of risk, they're all for it. But it has to work out perfectly, right, and for them to make that choice. Although the fact that they can't go to the commercial market um, in most cases or they can't afford it is, is driving a lot of company owners. Um, I'd say also, I don't know if this is true or not, but it kind of seems with a pandemic, people have more time to think about all their risks. You know, yeah. more things keep them up at night. So they're realizing, wow, I have all these risks that aren't covered. How do I cover them? How do I get a good night's sleep? I mean, well, the other thing that I think is important, from Joe, from your position as well, is that some of the 
rhetoric around the captive industry talking about a hard market i think is a misplaced a lot of the time a lot of the time we hear hard market is a great time for captives well no who owns captives insurance buyers own captives who's suffering from a hard market insurance buyers so yes I understand that it's good for the captive industry as a whole, you know, captive management industry, um, service providers such as lawyers or actuaries or accountants that service them, regulators that states that make money from regulating uh, captive insurance companies. But the end user of a captive is an insurance buyer who is having a terrible time in the hard market. And I think it's just good sometimes that we remember that uh, maybe some of the captive industry's gain is as a result of our most important clients' pain. Although the hard market and the pandemic, um, to Cassie's point, has, has brought a lot of attention to, uh, to captives and to really risk assessment uh, and, and, and trying to understand, manage, and control, and finance, uh, you know, risk better, um, uh, I do think it's uh, it ultimately you're you're right. I mean, the end user, the you know, is is still put in a bad spot. But that said, I think to to highlight Karen's point, those that have put in place captive programs previously and or prior to to these situations are in a great position um, to leverage the potential that you know the the, the cat their captive programs have yeah um and and say oh how else can we respond to this in a more creative and ultimately just a, a better way than fully relying on what's happening in the market yeah no i think i think joe's exactly right in terms of Maybe I should have prefaced it with those that have a pretty solid captive already, yeah. you know, formed. Yeah. We are definitely looking to it as a more active tool, right? Um, for those that that don't have or are forming, I mean, it does take a few years, right? The captive owner has to get everyone on board within the parent organization, all of that. That takes time. And then to really utilize the captive to bring, you know, advantageous, you know, risk financing mechanisms to your actual organization. That all takes time. So, um, yeah, I would love to see all captives become these active tools versus just reacting and plugging holes. Right. But as you were all saying, that's kind of what happens when it comes to a harsh market. You're just looking at plugging holes in the sinking ship, making sure that your your ship doesn't go down with all the waves. Right. So it, it is. Luckily, oh, I love that analogy. <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> Have you done this before? <laughs> um, actually, we talk about the harsh market so much. Now that we're saying harsh market, I like it. So instead of hard, um, but but honestly, yeah, it's 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 something we all talk about all the time. And Kutch is right. Twenty twenty, that was the big. Those were the big talk it, topics. You know, the pandemic and and how the harsh market is making that even harder. <laughs> so, um, I, I'll, I'll say one other thing. I, I do think that. This is the story, or, or this should be a piece of the story that's told to highlight the value of the captive industry. Mm. Um, and and, and that this story flies in the face of some of the things that some of the, the, the states are doing. To say, you know, y'all are making it difficult for companies to really create something that, that, that ultimately benefits them and then ultimately benefits the end user, the consumers of their products. Uh, and 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 their constituents, if they're politicians, and, and they pay they're, tax they're, too. Yeah, the larger yeah, the larger tax <laughs> base, exactly. So it's it's. I think this is a better story, and this is the way that you know. I think we all want the uh, the direction to go. I very much look forward to reading that article. 
Yeah, no, I agree. That's a good point, Cassie. And, and and I like what Joe's done there. He's actually, in a way that I couldn't have done as the professional journalist and podcast producer, linked those first two stories together very nicely. Um, but let's uh, let's move on. In the second half, we're going to get stuck into some pretty intriguing, uh, well, intriguing in my life, maybe like my life's a bit too boring, but intriguing European developments and uh, see if we can make sense of another turbulent year of 831Bs. First, however, I'm delighted to introduce Chris DL and Roger Jones of London and Capital to provide some analysis and insights on the investment markets over the past three months. Chris and Roger begin by discussing the progress on vaccines and how this is impacting equities. So we talk a lot at LNC, uh, London Capital, about macroeconomic events, uh, macroeconomic developments, and how those factor into today's investment environment. Retrospectives on 2020 as a year have been well and truly done at this point. So today, we're going to go straight into discussing the market dynamics that we've seen in equity markets over the past three months. While most captives are, of course, primarily fixed income investors, equities have really driven investment returns over the last 12 months, even for captives with as little as 5 or 10% in equities. And that's really down to, to the strong absolute performance that we've seen from, from equity markets across the world. With fixed income yields now being well and truly anchored to the floor, the outlook for equities is increasingly important for captive investment returns. And so with that dynamic in mind, I'm, I'm joined today by Roger Jones, our head of equities and I think if we focus just on the period uh, between the beginning of November and the end of January, we've got an awful lot to talk through uh, from the implications of US presidential elections to the Reddit trading phenomenon that is Wall Street bets. And I guess the first one is around vaccines. So vaccine progress, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of COVID-19 vaccines have, has been really phenomenal in the last uh, three months with three viable vaccines uh, becoming approved by most Western regulators in Q4, and plenty more, of course, in the pipeline. So we're, we're also seeing a rollout of those vaccines in January 2021 accelerate, which is obviously great news for society at large. What impacts did these developments have on, on equities in Q4 and into January 2021? And is it fair to say that the markets have now sort of baked in an assumption that this vaccine rollout is going to continue at a pace in 2021, and if that's true, what kind of uh, what kind of flags and signals do we need to look out for in terms of whether that assumption might change? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Chris. I think it is, as you say, the most pertinent question uh, at the, and most pertinent point at this time. So we did have a lot going on clearly in the, the fourth quarter, but I think ultimately the biggest news was the vaccine news. But the pace of especially the UK and the US shows how quickly this can be implemented. And I think that has allowed the market to look forward, look through this very difficult, depressed um, economic period due to the pandemic to see the other side of it, to see the return to normality, to see economies starting to get back to normal and be able to function again. And a lot of the measures that um, have been put in place, both from a fiscal point of view and a monetary point of view, have allowed the markets and the economies to get over this very difficult period and actually um, not have the sort of financial distress that we could have had. Uh, and the vaccines ultimately are the, the most important element of that. 
as it allows normalization. So I think it is a huge issue. The, even going back to October, though, the, clearly there was the hope of a, of a vaccine and the expectation of recovery that wasn't actually in place. But now, clearly, that is no longer just a hope. It's very much reality, and the progress has is, is been quite rapid. So I think this will be hugely helpful for economies and markets. We've seen clearly, as you mentioned, or alluded to that um, the yield curve has steepened quite a lot in terms of bond markets and now a strong recovery expected in the second half of this year and a more normalized economic um, growth levels that we've seen probably post the financial crisis for the years after that. So I think it is the biggest game changer in terms of the outlook. Um, and I think also the fact that it was developed so quickly talks a lot to the developments in, in technology and medical science. Looking at your point, talking a little bit about last year, obviously, we knew that last year, 2020, was a strange year. And it's incredibly telling that unprecedented became the word of the year. That said, January 2021 has arrived as a really strong competitor with uh, volatility spiking and, quite frankly, some really bizarre market dynamics happening in the US equity markets in particular. Without wanting to go into a lot of detail around what happened with GameStop or, or AMC, um, I think for those who, who need to be filled in on the story, we've got a few uh, good summary links in the show notes so you can sort of read about that um, on your own time. But can you give us a take on what we've seen in the last um, month in January 2021 in equity markets and, and how we're viewing it? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think it follows quite neatly on this sort of opening up this recovery um, that was gathering momentum had led investors to very risk on positioning. And so we saw a lot of sentiment indicators, a lot of cash balances coming down, um, sentiment indicators, sorry, being very high, um, cash balances coming down, risk appetites in markets really peaking at levels we've, we've hardly seen um, post the, the financial crisis. So obviously, there was a bit of euphoria, a bit of exuberance in, in equity markets. They're always vulnerable when that happens to a change in pattern. And that came about from clearly the, the sort of technical situation, the, the squeeze really of hedge funds on the short side of some of these unloved stocks that were very popular um, names that had been shorted. So I think this is going to be a phenomenon that actually continues, not maybe in this specific way and format, but in terms of volatility remaining within equity markets and maybe volatility being more elevated than we saw in the the very low um, levels of volatility in equity markets post the financial crisis. I think we will see a more volatile equity market going forward because of these sort of dynamics. And we've seen quite a big rotation as well back into more economically sensitive cyclical stocks uh, as the economies are looking a lot more positive in terms of their outlooks um, going into the latter part of this year. So we're seeing these big daily moves, these big rotations in terms of sector positions. This is something to continue to watch out for and be aware that we are likely not to go back to that low-level volatility equity market, which was very unusual in a historic um, context, but will be at more elevated volatility levels, aligned with what we saw in the, the 1990s, the early 2000s, as opposed to post-financial crisis. So with that heightened volatility in mind and, and the fact that perhaps we're more susceptible to those sort of big rotational shifts uh, at relatively short notice, 
we'd argue certainly as a firm that 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 really plays into the strength that an active investment manager should should have and and certainly we are an active investment manager as a firm and we have a very well-defined approach to equity investing we're very selective by individual stocks we compound those returns for our clients over the long term and, and importantly we avoid areas of the markets where expectations seem stretched looking at the whole of the market what areas are stretched? What are the areas that we're most concerned about? The biggest starting point is we don't believe this is a sector phenomenon. As you mentioned, Chris, we look at investing on a longer term basis and high quality stocks that can compound good returns. And we have two real categories of this defensive, high quality franchise businesses that can compound these returns over um, over decades and show low volatility in terms of their operating metrics and profitability. However, the other area we look at is, is a higher growth area. We still think there's scarcity value in growth and we still think that companies that can grow earnings on average more than 10% a year into double digits are, are going to be very attractive going forward. And there is clearly a big shift in terms of technology usage as well. So it would be easy to say this is another dot-com bubble. I don't think that is the case. I think you know some of these technology stocks actually still have moved a long way, but a lot of that has been backed up by very strong continued growth and a step change forward in terms of usage of technology. I think there are certain areas, though, clearly that there is more exuberance and have a lot more to prove, let's say, in terms of their ability to grow into their valuations. Uh, I think uh, electronic vehicles and that sort of area has captured a lot of attention. Um, It's difficult to see the sustained competitive advantages there Direction of growth is is clearly going to be strong, but it's more challenging to see where the winners come from. So I think that would be an area we'd be cautious on. So ultimately, this calls for doing a lot of due diligence into stocks and making sure that the total addressable market size in a lot of the areas are is compelling and that it is large enough um, um, and the company can consistently have this competitive advantage to make good returns in this area. So that's maybe the kind of technology side of it. I think there is another side clearly, maybe on the other side of the spectrum, which is businesses that clearly have structural decline um, to some extent. Now, yes, oil companies, energy companies might have a short term recovery potential. The oil price has rebounded back to pre-pandemic levels and there is that that recovery track. But it's very difficult, I think, longer term to make the argument or the put forward the point that we're going to get consistent demand in in terms of oil. I mean it's already been growing at about half the rate of GDP prior to the pandemic. And also supply is fairly plentiful, uh, especially when we start to cross this $50 a barrel price point. One has to be a lot more selective going forward. Um, and I, I think that will come out in the next um, the next year, really, after we get past this initial period of, of recovery coming through where a rising tide will float all boats. So in, in, that, in that kind of environment where perhaps we're going we're gonna to be seeing increasing divergence between sectors in the market, um, and in terms of those future return expectations, we've talked a lot uh, as a firm about fiscal policy in in the western world needing to step in and drive equity markets forward given uh, the low interest rate environment that we're in and the largely static corporate earnings 
if obviously excluding those areas of the market where there is some evidence of growth. What, what do we really mean by that when we talk about fiscal policy driving equity market returns and, and what are the market signals that we're most closely watching? If anything, the, maybe the most crucial sort of element and, and nuance that equity investors need to be aware of over the next decade. So the last decade, I would say, has been characterized a lot, not by huge profit growth, in fact, since 2015, if you look at corporate profit growth, um, it's been fairly flat. So even pre-pandemic, um, from 15 to 19, if you like, we didn't see a huge amount of earnings growth or profit growth. But what did happen was clearly monetary policy was in- incredibly supportive. We saw rates um, continually being on a downward trajectory, especially at the, the, the longer end, the 30-year, which is very important. So we saw this, uh, these moves, and we've now got a situation, as I think you mentioned at the very beginning, of this anchoring in terms of interest rate expectations and guidance. What that has brought about for equity investors is, and what this lowering of the cost of capital, if you like, um, effectively that is looking at the the equivalent of that and. Price to earnings metrics, a common valuation metrics used by equity investors, we've seen that multiple inflate. So although profits haven't grown a long way, the multiple applied to that level of profit has gone up quite substantially due to this lower monetary policy. So therefore, we get good share price performance. Now, going forward, we think this will change. It's not that the central banks won't continue to be accommodative. It's ultimately that they are really pushing on a piece of string to some extent now in terms of the impact they can have on asset markets. They'll be supportive, they'll be helpful for economies, but I I think to actually say that they're going to be a big boost from here is more of a stretch. But what is and what could become uh, and should become really the watching point for investors is fiscal policy. Another bill um, going through the US at the moment, which will just be under $2 trillion in terms of fiscal stimulus. These are very large numbers. These have big impacts in terms of profit growth as opposed to this multiple growth. So what fiscal policy will do will be drive the corporate profits. Uh, it will create jobs. Um, it will make a difference to the real economy a little bit more. We've already seen this to some extent because the measures they put in, these where they were incredibly quick to act in terms of fiscal measures, job um, or income support schemes that have taken place across the world brought huge pent-up demand when the economies have started to open up. Um, and then we saw a spike in saving rates then, saving rates come back down as consumption came back in. So this is hugely important. We've seen this being very favorable for a lot of corporates and their profitability. So this is going to be a key factor to watch going forward. The analogy I kind of like to use, whether it will become to be uh, reality or not, let's, let's wait and see. But Investors used to be waiting in every word of the the chairman of uh, of the Federal Reserve. I think now it's going to be very much more waiting in every word of um, government policy in terms of fiscal stimulus and the impact that will have on markets. Many thanks, Roger, for that insight. Um, a lot, a lot there for for captives to digest. And I think clearly we are at uh, a point in the market, certainly from an investment, uh, from an equity market perspective, where where captives are increasingly going to need to be thinking about how they're managing their equity allocations. Um, obviously, if London can Capital can uh, can help at all, we'd love to do that. Uh, please do get in touch. But in the meantime, we'll hand back to Richard.
thank you to Chris and Roger at London and Capital for another great quarterly investments update. As ever, more information can be found on them and their captive offering on globalcaptivepodcast.com. Now, let's get back to the news. And uh, again, something we published in uh, Captive.com about uh, Italy. So, yeah, so the European captive scene, I think, guys, has been fair to, fair to say it's been a pretty slow place in terms of news over the last five or six years since Solvency 2 was introduced. Just to, to bring you guys up to speed, what's the traditional captive centres in the EU are Dublin, Luxembourg and Malta. Uh, and then you've got Guernsey, an Isle of Man has been kind of outside the EU, particularly uh, strong hubs for the UK market and, and international markets as well. But what we're starting to see, and this first emerged uh, with some news out of France in December and now Italy as well, are some of these larger industrial nations starting to put their hat in the ring as potential captive domiciles. Now, a bit like some of the activity we've seen in the States with the likes of Texas and Tennessee and North Carolina and others, they're starting off by very much targeting or not targeting because it's not the same in that regard but Italy want to house Italian owned captives the French want to own or house sorry French owned captives and it's been driven by the corporates themselves so we're stuck and it's driven for slightly different reasons than what we see in the United States and it's about transfer pricing about the base erosion and profit shifting project uh, that the OECD have been doing and there's concerns that tax authorities in their home countries don't necessarily understand or are particularly friendly towards the use of captives particularly when they're large captives with big sums of money involved and so the Italians and the French are thinking if we can do this in our home country we'll do it in our home country we'll save on business expenses we might save on some operating expenses we will we won't have all the tax scrutiny that we get with being in a luxembourg or an island or a bermuda or whoever we'll just be home and that'll be the problem solved i don't think it's that easy i think it might create more problems do you have the other bit of news out of europe which we covered in uh, gcp insights was some changes potentially to solvency 2 so solvency 2 basically in, in very short order is is the insurance regime for the whole of the Euro- any country in the european union any insurer which is which is domiciled within a european union member state so supposedly that means that all insurance companies including captives should be regulated in broadly the same way it's quite quite high capitalization requirements it's quite burdensome reporting but we've learned to live with it over the last five years the, the big battle that the captive owner community through uh Ekiroa and firma had five or six years ago was they wanted a, a degree of proportionality applied to captive so if you're a captive writing first party risk you shouldn't be regulated in the same way that aig is for example like you like you'd expect and does happen in the united states and in other jurisdictions there was a proportional proportionality principle added to Solvency 2, included in Solvency 2. It's been applied not consistently across jurisdictions and largely not applied to a great degree for captives. So captives, while they do get a few reporting uh, requirements that aren't needed, a bit lighter than commercial companies, the, the regulation, regulatory burden on captives inside the EU is, is significant. Now, there are some proposals which we cover in GCP Insights which will potentially lessen those requirements and make a better proportionality regime however they, as ever they come with some criteria so it's not all good news it's not all uh, uh clear i can see your hands going up asking me some questions you're mentioning kind of the proposed improved por- proportionality uh for for captives right and whether and it brings pros and cons um do you think that 
I know that Solvency 2 had been, you know, a problem for captives. Do you think that actually improves on that at all? Do you think it adds to kind of the complexity? For some, it, it will be a benefit. These, these new suggestions under Solvency 2 will c- produce some light, what I'd say was light regulatory relief. Right. And we were very fortunate in, in the article on GTP Insights to talk to uh, Lorraine Stack of Marsh and Derek Bridgman of SRS Europe and Fabrice Ferrer of Aon in Luxembourg. And they, they provided some really good analysis of, of kind of where it might be particularly helpful. I think the first step, which Lorraine highlighted, was just the fact that IOPA are considering and open to some more relief for captives uh, and for it to be on the agenda is, is, is a step forward in itself. In terms of will it reduce costs for captives operating within the EU, management costs, management fees, not nothing significant. We're talking about rather than producing your own risk consultancy assessment every year, you might only have to do it every two years. It's not that's not going to reduce the workload hugely. The captive managers are saying as well that they already don't charge the full amount for the amount of work they do. So the fact it might come down a little bit, you're not going to see your fees reduced. Some of these new potential bits of regulatory relief under the new Solvency 2 regime, if it's passed and it hasn't passed yet, it needs to go through, I think, the European Parliament and the European Commission, is they're saying only captives can qualify for this if you then stop loaning back cash to your parent. That's quite a big move if to, if to, to, to try and get a report filed once every two years rather than every year, which might not even save you any money. So a lot of this stuff might become irrelevant because captives just will say that the trade-off isn't worth it. Yeah, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Uh, someone is on point with their analogies I know, today. my analogies are A-OK today. That should be the, you know, the, the actual name of this episode. <laughs> Another option, for sure. The Solvency 2 bit is interesting, and it's going to run and run. For me, the big debate, which is going to dominate the European captive market in 2021, is this idea that we're going to have more captive domiciles. Every country is going to be a captive domicile, and everyone just moves their captives back home. We're going to explore this in a lot more depth in the April edition of GCP Insights. I think captive owners might want to be careful what they wish for. I think it's going to possibly achieve the opposite of what they want to achieve which is cheaper operating costs i think it might be more expensive captive management as cassie will probably know it's not a high margin business it's meant to benefit from economies of scale it helps if you've got concentration of staff in dublin or luxembourg if you've got to have an office in rome and madrid and paris and and frankfurt then it's going to be more expensive not less expensive so i mean do you see other countries like even germany i'm surprised germany's not at the forefront if italy and france do it you'd expect Germany might do it. Germany's a little bit different. Germany does already have, I think it's eight or nine captives there, but these are the huge kind of biggest German companies. Lufthansa's captive is not really a captive. The Lufthansa captive is a commercial insurance company in its own right. The Ah. Siemens captive is huge. Uh, They're both in Germany. So they kind of would, under Solvency 2, they would be regulated almost as commercial insurance companies anyway, I think. But, you know, that's a trend that people are worried about. If, if, Unlike the US, where it's driven by politicians and regulators, in the in the Europe, because of the transfer pricing scrutiny from tax authorities, the corporates are saying, "Okay, if you're going to give us grief about this, we just want to move our captive back to France, and we haven't got to deal with it." But let's let's not bore everyone with European stuff uh, too much longer. We are always going to talk about it. It is a very important market. It's obviously where I'm based. There is actually some stuff happening there, so it's going to be a big theme of uh, of GCP and across all our channels for the rest of this year. Now, a topic that I uh, I, I definitely don't love as much as the European captive landscape is the 831B topic. And, and Cassie worked with me in the latest and, and first edition of GCP Insights and a really good article we did 
really trying to unpick everything that happened uh, in the 831B market over the last, particularly over the last 12 months in 2020. There was some high profile court cases, which Cassie will, will come on to. And it's just this ongoing debate in the industry about there is abuse of 831B captives. How do we deal with that? How do we accept they exist and root it out without you know damaging the rest of the industry? So Cassie, do you want to bring us up to speed with the, the state of play of the major 831B stories in, in 2020? And of course, uh, reference our, our fantastic article in your timeline as well. Yeah, so I hope uh, listeners didn't hang up already when you said that it's not your favorite and it's boring, <laughs> basically. I didn't say um, it's boring, I'm just bored of talking about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, luckily I am not. I think this is a lot of drama right now. So there's three things that you touched on. There's the CIC services case, the and then the IRS um has issued summons to several companies, but the two prominent ones we're going to discuss are against the Delaware Department of Insurance and then against a law firm. So as you mentioned in the GCP Insights magazine, there are bad actors, I mean, there are in any industry, but the IRS has taken the position that all 831B owners are bad without even you know taking congressional intent or taxpayer comments into consideration. Um, and that leads to the CIC case. They're claiming this notice 2016-66 was issued, which is a heavy burden on the industry. They already have the information. The IRS has admitted they already have the information. So there, the, that case is actually, um, it's reached the Supreme Court. There were, there were oral arguments in December. It's actually, I laughed out loud listening to them. Like, some of the Supreme Court justices get a little (laughs) sass. Um, But it comes down to, really, the IRS wants the authority to bypass any law or regulation in order to receive any information they ask for. And this is apparent with their summonses, because in the IRS summons against MIJS, the law firm previously mentioned, and the Delaware Department of Insurance, And these two court cases have something in common in several ways. I mean, the United States is suing on behalf of the IRS to enforce a summons. They both have to do with 831Bs, but they're going about it in different ways because, of course, there are different rules governing each plaintiff. The DDOI has rules, and then lawyers have rules, but both are heavily, heavily centered around protecting client information. So if you read the article that was published, you'll see, you know, the DDOI, the Delaware Department of Insurance, did comply with the IRS to the extent it could applicable to its law. Now, the interesting thing with the MIJS cases was actually a suit similar that the IRS brought in 2016 that in 2017 a judge ruled that they have to give all requested information to the IRS except for attorney-client privileged information. Now, let's fast forward. It's 2020, now 2021. The judge has said, okay, I'm not dealing with this crap because basically the law firm said, we're not giving you anything. It's all attorney-client privileged. And so one of the judges before the final ruling said, okay, we're going to get a mutual party in here that's going to decide. So the special master was um, proposed that the the two parties, IRS and the law firm, would split the cost, 
and that third party would decide what is confidential and what is not. Well, in the final ruling that just came out, the judge said no. The law firm isn't being asked to hand over all attorney-client privilege information, but they're not going to. I'm not going to grant the special master to mediate between the parties. So I see in the future more litigation to follow. Obviously, there can't be a blanket rule that all information is attorney-client privileged, but also there is information attorney-client privileged. Now, how are these two parties going to decide it? They're not. Well, so we'll see what happens. Quite important legal developments to keep keep track of and a potential precedents to be set, which might may or may not be dangerous or depending on which side of it you look at it from. And look, there's, there's a reason the IRS are looking at this stuff because right. it, there is abuse. And right. what I find frustrating, and, and Ryan Work touches on this from Sire in, in the article, is that, you know, I go to conferences, well, I used to go to conferences, I haven't been to one for a while, but you go, I go to conferences and everyone sits on a stage and everyone presents and everyone says, we do it right. You know, 841Bs, yeah, there has been some abuse, but we do it right. I've sat there, looked at the stage, and I know the person on the stage doesn't do it right or is currently under investigation. So this idea that, and we write about this in the article, this idea that these people who are abusers of it can just be disassociated with the industry as bad players, I don't think it's that sincere because some of these people are quite embedded. They're on boards of associations, etc., And it needs a a more thorough look at from the industry to, to root the bad actors out. It's hard. I mean, I I really like the point that uh, Kutchu made in the article, which is really that the abuse really doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? It is facilitated, and and so I I like that because it's 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 really true. Yeah, and and, and I would just say that you know the industry needs to do a better job with self regulation uh, because of that. The question is, how do we go about that? But if we don't go about it in the appropriate way, it attracts and uh, and and the need for an outside regulatory body to, you know, to employ their regulations on the industry, which is kind of what I think the IRS is trying to do uh, in some capacity. And then does that lead to some 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 further desire on a federal level to have, you know, some some regulatory authority, you know, over all of this? And I mean, I hope not, but I'm saying, you know, we we want to avoid these things, you know, but then what, what do you do with things like with the conversation that surrounds um, even things like licensing captive managers and things of this nature, you know, uh, it's it gets very sticky because who would license them? Number one, what kind of experience would they need? It's not like it's an attorney or an accountant where, OK, you go to school for this and there's a, you know, an outside regulatory body that, you know, um, uh, provides you know the uh, the actual degree or whatnot. So it's uh, it's it's complex, but I think one that our generation and captives needs to address. Yeah, I would say an interesting article for the future, Richard, might be the SIA initiative. They have created best practices, and it has been adopted by domiciles. Yeah, no, yeah, and it, it can be easy to get too down on it. I just think that the industry has been complacent for quite a long time on this, and that it needs to be said. I think regulators have their role to play. That's a whole other debate, which we could fill another half an hour with. But I mean, in terms of regulating captive managers and licensing captive managers, Delaware also all kind of do it to a degree, because I believe, and Cassie can correct me if I'm wrong, but if you want to 
apply for a conditional license in Delaware, you have to already be like an approved captive manager in Delaware. So there is already a, a degree of that. Yeah, you have to, you can't just be an approved. You have, they have to know that what you're presenting has been fully vetted. It's legit and you can't abuse that privilege. So yeah, let's wrap it up there, guys. We're always going to try and finish on uh, on a, a more fun, lighter note. And uh, we're going to ask a question to, to each of the panel, uh, a little bit of fun. And Cassie has come up with the, uh, the our first question uh, for the panel. So Cassie, what is the question and who do you want to address it to first? You know, Richard, you talk a lot, so I'm going to start with you. But my question for everybody, including myself, is if you could ensure any risk in your personal life, no limitations what would it be and why so so when you kind of pose this earlier and i have had a little chance to think about it i think i think it would have to be the emotional damage inflicted on me by derby county football club <laughs> um, and and they they do that they do that to me at least twice a week and they're probably doing it to me now they're probably doing it to me now because we did kick off uh 25 minutes ago but yeah ensuring ensuring all of my cancelled sporting events from last year would have been quite useful because uh, i had a lot of really fun stuff lined up all around the world to attend um but nothing quite takes its toll like the mighty Rams. so if there is some kind of parametric payout that could be triggered by a Derby County loss, then that could be quite useful and probably quite profitable uh, yeah. for me as well. What about you, Karen? I like that parametric payout. Uh, I could use that <laughs> money too. Um, um, I think so. We were talking about this a little bit and I know I'm not Taylor Swift and I can't ensure my beautiful legs, but because of my previous life as a dancer and athlete of sorts, I would like to... Previous being the optimum word there. Yeah, previous being optimum, exactly. Thank you, Kutch, <laughs> for bringing that to everyone. <laughs> but my ankles, like I, I was mentioning before, I I honestly probably sprain it, break it, I don't know, do something, fracture it. I, it's been once, at least once every year. I Knock on wood, that doesn't happen because we haven't been able to go anywhere this year. But yeah, I remember uh, being at the World Captive Forum one year and having to be in a boot wobbling around, like I said, with one heel because fashion should never be compromised, even if you're in a boot, right? Yes, um, ma'am. <laughs> and it, but it was definitely one of those things where I was like, man, if I could, I would ensure this body part. That sounds really weird, but you know what I mean. Spot on. Joe, you're <laughs> up. Can you beat that? I, I don't think I can beat that, no. Uh, mine's going to be kind of kind of boring, but uh, I, I might take it in, in, in and offer this coverage to, uh, to to others as well. So not just, just, just personally. Okay, so you're making I'd a profit. I to offer it to others. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. Diversify. Third part, yeah. <laughs> student, student loan default insurance. Oh. That's where I would go. Oh. Especially for the states. Like, come on. Anybody that wants to say, hey, just sign the policy and, hey, you know, hey, try to pay. But if you can't pay, we got you covered. Oh, we like that. I like that. Can we talk later? Like, we all need to talk later about On this. the side. <laughs> Is that not a policy that UC already offers? It's I was going to say, we have something like that. <laughs> let's do that. Let's let's partner some tuition refund. I don't know. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> Cassie, Cassie, come on. You finish this off. So I would ensure the loss or injury of all the animals that I'm going to have on my little rescue farm. So if they're injured or, you know, you know, die, as well as emotional damage. So, you know, I'm trying to help the greater good here. Yeah, Cassie's going for the social good angle. Joe's trying to do a business deal. 
Karen's trying to elongate her uh, <laughs> her her fashion her fashion choices, I think. Um, and I'm just des- depressed about Derby County Football Club. Oh. That's, that's, He's that's got emotional great, needs. <laughs> Very different. I, I do. All right. That's been great. It's been really fun uh, having you guys on the first of our GCP Insights podcast. Hope listeners made it all the way to the end. Please do stick with us. We'll be doing this uh, again in April. And uh, f- uh, just to end, Joe, thank you very much for joining us. It's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, th- thank you, Richard and, and, and uh, Karen, Cassie. Thank you all so much. It's been fun. Can't wait to do it again. And Cassie, thank you for uh, putting us in our, in our legal place a number of times. It's a blast. I can't wait for the next one, guys. And Karen, thanks for taking some time out from your uh, hobby of being the program manager at University of California. Oh, you know, the multiple <laughs> hats. That's a, that's a daily thing. So, um, no, thanks for having me. This was great. It was really fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. And see you next time, captives. Bye. Bye.